win-win will kill your deal because it invites unnecessary compromise. How often over the past couple of decades have we read or heard the phrase, win-win? Thousands? The term has become a cliché in our culture, the only acceptable paradigm for personal interaction of any sort. In business, its appeal rests on the proposition that no company has the right to plunder a market just because it enjoys a position of strength and dominance. We believe that shared prosperity, win-win prosperity, is the sustainable one. It all sounds so good, what stick in the mud could possibly disagree that win-win is the model to use in negotiation? Well, the author disagrees. Based on his nearly 20 years of experience as a negotiation coach, he believes win-win is hopelessly misguided as a basis for good negotiating, in business or in your personal life or anywhere else. This book and his systems should be viewed as a rejection of win-win and all its kind. What is the poison that resides at the heart of the big lie that is win-win? You've heard of the deadly stuff. It's called compromise. Many negotiators play the win-win game with an implicit invitation to debilitating early compromise on the part of their unwary adversaries, who are, in turn, almost programmed into this fatal mistake by the mantra of win-win. Those smooth-talking negotiators don't compromise, but they demand that you do. Why in the world would you compromise before you're certain you have to? Sometimes you do, and that's fine, but often you don't, and that's better. The key point is that with the win-win mindset, you'll never know which it is. Think carefully about this for a moment, win-win and compromise are a defeatist mindset from the first handshake. Negotiating under the banner of win-win, you'll have no way of knowing if you've made good and necessary decisions leading up to the compromise. The author's principle, and title, start with no, is based on the understanding that no, is a decision. An early, yes, is probably a trick, and, maybe, is just that, maybe, and gets you nowhere. But, no, is a decision that gives everyone something to talk about, that helps you maintain control. To repeat, win-win is often win-lose. This is because it invites unnecessary compromise, it is emotion-based, and it plays to the heart, not the head. And one more thing, win-win is not based on definitive principles, it's based on the definition of a wise agreement. The content of this book is contrarian, but the structure couldn't be more straightforward. The chapters introduce, one by one, the principles and practices of the author's system. They progress from the more general principles that are really about preparing yourself for negotiation, neediness, being not okay, to principles that are still about preparing yourself, but also take you into the realm of actual negotiations. You will learn how to rigorously structure the negotiating process, none of them being the usual practices of the business world. Neediness in negotiation will make you lose control and make bad decisions. Why is the tiger's eye set in the front of the head, facing forward? Because the animal is a predator, always on the lookout for prey. Why are our own eyes also set in the front of the head, facing forward? Because we are predators as well. Like all predators, we humans often take advantage of the fear-wracked, the distressed, the vulnerable, the needy. We're capable of wonderful altruism as well, but we don't find too much altruism in the business and negotiation world, despite all the sweet talk of some cagey win-win negotiators. In a negotiation, dog-eat-dog may not do justice to the hidden ferocity. In your life as a negotiator, even in your life as a private citizen of the world, you are dealing with some serious predators who are looking for the slightest sign of distress and neediness. It is absolutely imperative that you, as a negotiator, understand the importance of this point. You do not need this deal, because to be needy is to lose control and make bad decisions. How vulnerable are you to predators when you lose control?
Very vulnerable. No talking. Talking can be an overt showing of need. This is why no talking is one of the author's rules, an exaggeration, of course, but he makes it a rule to make the point, talking and showing need go hand in hand. One of the author's best students started out with an insatiable desire to make sure his voice was heard. This guy was bright and always wanted people to know that he was as informed and on top of things as anyone in the room. He needed to feel important. Okay, thought his shrewder adversaries, we'll be happy to let you feel important as we skin you alive. This is a common issue that hard-driving, alpha male types have to deal with daily, they want to know it all, or, short of that, they want to be seen to know it all. The adrenaline kicks in, the neediness becomes a biochemical fact, then the neediness becomes a biochemical addiction. It's true. Don't worry about rejection. Fear of rejection is a sign of neediness, specifically, the need to be liked. It is imperative for the negotiator to understand just what rejection is, and who can reject you and who cannot. Here's the key point, your adversaries in a negotiation cannot reject you. There's nothing you need from them, so how can they reject you? It's impossible. The parent can reject the child because the child certainly needs the parent. The spouse can reject the spouse. The teacher can even reject the student in the early grades when the boy or girl truly does need this teacher. But can your adversary in a negotiation really reject you? They don't have any such power. Never, never allow them to believe that they do. Inject a little humanity, a little vulnerability, a little unokayness into the negotiation. Not being okay is not suggesting that you appear unprofessional. What the author means is for you not to be afraid of candor and honesty, not to be afraid of not being totally okay, of being less than perfect. Do you enjoy being around the perfect person? Many people don't. People want to deal with a regular person. In a negotiation, being less okay is just showing a foible now and then. Struggle a little. Borrow a pen or paper to take notes. Search for the right words to ask questions. Letting people help you is an excellent way to help them feel more okay. It also says to your adversary, what you see is what you get. The author's new clients think he must be kidding when he suggests they leave their briefcase or business cards at home for the first meeting, and maybe you wouldn't do it, but this gambit or something similar can be so powerful it's scary. He once coached a woman who sold office equipment to Silicon Valley startups. In one negotiation in which a $35,000 commission was at stake, he finally convinced her to drop her purse onto the floor. The only thing was when the purse hit the floor, it fell open, and the contents spilled everywhere. A real mess. The guy she was negotiating with hurried around the desk and got down on his knees to help her gather everything up. As she was expressing her embarrassment, he was saying, hey, forget it. You've got the deal. Some might call this gamesmanship, but this is not true. The woman didn't get the deal because she dropped her purse. She got the deal because the purse episode broke through the final barrier in the negotiation, allowing decisions to flow freely. This is not trivial gamesmanship. This is honesty, the honesty of unokayness that breaks down barriers. The tougher the negotiation, the more critical it is to understand that if someone in this room has to be unokay, it will be you and not your adversary. When your adversary feels unokay, the barriers go up much faster than you can break them down. But unokayness on your part breaks down barriers, like magic, often. This behavior is all easier said than done because from the day we're born, we're fighting for our okayness, and then we're almost trained to fight for it. And of course, we see pictures of the titans of industry, maybe the CEO of the very company we work for, dressed to the nines as they savor their power breakfasts, power lunches, power dinners, power aperitifs, and power cigars.
These guys are okay beyond belief. Their lives are what we're supposed to want and need. And here, the author suggests that you get to the top by presenting yourself as less okay. In the context of a negotiation, yes. He is not saying you show up with a stain on your shirt or blouse. Just a little something that's less than perfect to inject a little humanity, a little vulnerability, a little unokainess. If you have any doubts about the wisdom of the advice in this chapter, it couldn't be easier to check out. The next time you find yourself in a situation in which your adversary is maybe just a little standoffish or doubtful, try being a little less okay. Pretend your pen has run out of ink and ask to borrow one for a moment. Or search your pocket for your notepad and come up short and ask to borrow a slip of paper. Or pretend your palm pilot has run out of power, again. You'll notice an immediate, beneficial difference in the atmosphere of this negotiation. Maybe, is a frustrating waste of time, it is the kiss of death for a successful negotiation. The best, yes, in a negotiation is by way of, no. The phrase is a lot more than mere provocation. It's also the truth. The negotiation really does start with, no, not with, maybe, definitely not with, yes, but with a firm, clear, no. In any negotiation, this should be the keyword. Everything that precedes it is mere window dressing. How can this be? Because, no, is a real decision that induces the party across the table into actually thinking about why they've just said, no. The responsibility of making a clear decision helps the adversary focus on the real issues of the negotiation. The adversary has to take responsibility for, no, so now everyone has something real to talk about. In fact, as we will soon see, the mere invitation for the other side to say, no, changes the dynamic of negotiation in a very beneficial way. But the alternative answers, maybe, and, yes, aren't real decisions at all. They do nothing at all to stop the ebb and flow of emotions. They're just a frustrating waste of time. Let's see why. With, maybe, neither party has any idea where things stand. If you say, maybe, you haven't said enough to elicit a useful response or information from the other side, because you haven't really said anything at all. You've muddied the waters, nothing more. Likewise, when you hear, maybe, your emotions are all over the place. Did he really mean, yes? Are we almost there? Is he just trying a last-minute ploy for concessions? Or did he really mean, no, this offer doesn't have a chance? Or did he actually mean, maybe, because he doesn't even know what he wants? Well, who the heck has any idea? It definitely isn't a decision. It definitely does not engage the negotiator's rational mind. It definitely doesn't give either side anything to work with. Maybe, is the kiss of death for a successful negotiation. Sometimes even, maybe, is too harsh sounding for the faint of heart who doesn't want to hurt our feelings and perhaps endanger the negotiation. Sometimes the adversary is so conditioned by the getting to yes ethos that she starts out with yes. It is not a decision, not really, because your adversary can't really mean yes. If she did, everyone wouldn't be here negotiating in the first place. More importantly, when our adversaries say yes, we get excited, our adrenaline starts pumping, we start computing the commission and deciding between the Mercedes and the Beamer, and before we know it, we're what? Needy. And the moment we're needy, we've lost control. We know in our head that this, yes, isn't real and final, but the emotion in our heart surges nevertheless. And then, hours or days or weeks later, when this, yes, is followed by the adversaries, if, but, however, when, or some other dangerous qualifier, we've lost our focus and become vulnerable to unnecessary compromise. The other side is suddenly in control. Offering an early, yes, is a real tiger trick. It traps us in his cage.
Shrewd corporate negotiators use this trick all the time. Maybe is worthless, and yes is dangerous, so we're left with no, a real decision. As earlier said, no gets the adversary across the table into a rational mode. Just thinking about saying no gets the adversary into the rational mode. Elucidation is required, and now you have real issues to discuss. One of the most dangerous mistakes you can make in a negotiation is trying to save the adversary. There can be no saving of the adversary emotionally, intellectually, financially, or on any level. No none. Never. It's a terrible practice that does neither side any good. Neither side? That's correct, because if you do save the adversary, you are now partially responsible for their decision. If some problem comes up later, who gets the guilt trip laid on them? Who sets himself up for another compromise? Have a valid mission and purpose, it is the very essence of success. Effective negotiation is effective decision-making, plain and simple, and the foundation of effective decision-making is a valid mission and purpose to guide it. This is the bedrock of this system. How can you stay on track during a long negotiation or endeavor of any kind without a clear mission and purpose? There's no other way. But if you do develop and adhere to a valid mission and purpose, how can you go off track? It's impossible. If you have a valid mission and purpose, and the result of your negotiation fulfills this mission and purpose, it's a good and worthwhile negotiation. Now, that's pretty simple. It doesn't sound all that profound, but the principle works like magic. It's an airtight guide for effective decision-making. Here's the list of doubts that disrupt effective decision-making. Why take this deal? The whole thing sounds too good. Maybe I can win even more. Why are they making this so easy? What do they know that I don't know? This can't be right. How can I get out of this? Forget all this stuff. If your negotiation serves a valid mission and purpose, you don't have to worry about whether you get every last dollar or concession out of the deal, or whether you gave enough dollars and concessions. You don't have to worry about the long-term relationship. You are not responsible for the other party's decisions. You don't care whether this contract is win-win, win-lose, lose-win, or lose-lose. Such scorekeeping is suddenly seen for what it is, arbitrary, empty, meaningless. You don't have to worry about it anymore, and this freedom will liberate you in a negotiation. The author teaches and preaches that mission and purpose is the very essence of success. It must become as automatic as breathing. You must develop the habit of referring to it on matters great and small because it gives you crystal clear guidance in all cases. What happens if you don't have a valid mission and purpose in place? If you're not working on behalf of your own mission and purpose, you're working on behalf of someone else's. Now, it's fine to work on behalf of someone else if you understand that you are doing so, if you freely embrace and take their mission and purpose as your own or build your own to support theirs, but it is a terrible waste to work on behalf of someone else's mission and purpose without realizing it. But if you don't have one, haven't even thought about the subject, that's what is happening. People who are unhappy and frustrated in their work either have invalid mission and purposes, I want to make a million dollars before I'm 21, or they don't have one and are serving someone else's, and some part of them understands this at some deep level. What is a valid mission and purpose? It must be set in the adversary's world. For a politician and leader, it must be set in the world of his or her constituents. For a businessperson, it must be set in the world of the customer. For a negotiator, it must be set in the world of the team sitting across the table. Setting the mission and purpose in the constituents or the customers or the adversary's world allows all of them to see clearly the features and benefits that you and your product or service have to offer them. 
For the negotiator, setting the mission and purpose statement in the adversary's world is a fundamental way in which you see your adversary's world clearly and without false assumptions, and get the adversary to see and act with the same clarity. In his excellent book, Management, Tasks, Responsibilities, and Practices, Peter Drucker dedicates many pages to the issue of understanding what it is you really do, your mission and purpose. He writes, your business is never apparent. It requires in-depth questioning that gives you a process that provides constant refocusing of what you do. You must continuously analyze and ask yourself, what is my business? What is my mission? What is my purpose? As you set a valid mission and purpose in place, you will discover that the picture of what you are trying to accomplish becomes crystal clear, and you eliminate all confusion. As a negotiator, once you have a mission and purpose, you can control your emotions, you can make effective decisions. If every decision you make, even one that doesn't turn out well, is in the service of a sound mission and purpose, you cannot go wrong, not in the long run. Mission and purpose can be the single most powerful card you hold in your hand. Stop trying to control the outcome, focus on your behavior and actions instead. What goals did you set prior to sitting down with this book and thinking at greater length about the art and science of negotiation? You probably didn't set any. That's fine. Most people wouldn't, no one said you had to. But, now is a good time you think about your goal for this undertaking. As a beginner in the study of decision-based negotiation as opposed to emotion and compromise-based negotiation, your initial goals should be to focus at all times on your mission and purpose, to control your neediness and never demonstrate neediness, to always allow your adversary to be okay, to have no fear of saying or hearing no, the subjects of the preceding chapters. Right there, you have four very straightforward, attainable, valid goals that, if carefully followed, would make you an excellent negotiator, relative to the field. But the real point here is the distinction between a goal and a result, or objective, as it's commonly labeled. Goals you can control, objectives you cannot. By following your behavioral goals, you get to your objectives. One last time, instead of trying to break par, or bogey, more likely, a result we cannot control, we concentrate on putting a good swing on the ball, an action we can control. In the author's coaching experience, and it's pretty broad, ranging over many different fields of business, he has observed that the failure to set manageable goals is as common a mistake as any other. People get confused because they don't have a step-by-step -step plan. They casually talk about goals and results, or objectives, but they don't really know how to distinguish between them. For one thing, they don't have a mission and purpose to guide them. They thereby put themselves on an emotional roller coaster, and this is a fatal error. Disappointment, excitement, despair, hope, they experience the whole range of emotions, and all because they're reacting to events over which they don't have control and ignoring those over which they do have control. By following your valid goals, you obtain your objective. By obtaining your objective, you further your mission and purpose. At all times, you set goals and objectives that are as valid as the mission and purpose they serve. It sounds simple, and it is simple to state and understand, but it takes discipline and practice to actually live and negotiate in this way. You could think of this book, as nothing more or less than a means to identify activities and behaviors that we can control during a negotiation. The most important behavioral goal and habit you can develop is your ability to ask questions. How do we stop adversaries from hedging, fudging, and outright lying to us? How do we make deals that stick? How do we answer truthfully without destroying the feelings of someone else? 
We use the specific goals of behavior and action, goals we can control, that the author calls the fuels of the system. These are the behavioral habits that allow us to peel the onion of the adversary's business situation and negotiating position and find out what's really going on over there. The single most important fuel that you have, the most important behavioral goal and habit you can develop, is your ability to ask questions. Asking questions is a science and an art. The science is in how you intellectually construct a question. The art is found in how you ask it, your tone of voice, your creative choice of words, your behavior, and remarks before asking your question. So now we're going to get pretty technical. In the construction of our questions, we can start with a verb or with an interrogative. The verb-led question is just that, a question that begins with a verb. Is this something you should do? Can you do this? Will you do this? Do you need this? Do you have five minutes to see me? How many responses can such questions bring? Off the top, but the correct answer is three. Yes. No. Maybe. For a negotiator's purposes, maybe tells you nothing at all, and yes is even worse. Only no tells you something real, gives you something to go on with your next question. With only O and E worthwhile answer out of the three, it follows that verb-led questions are often a waste of time. Therefore, there are only two reasons to ask such a question, if you already know the answer, or if you're near the very end of the negotiation and you have to really bore in. The answer to the verb-led question usually does not give you worthwhile information. That's one problem. Another problem is that such a question can be as if you're driving for a, yes, can you do this, is a perfect example. This question seems to the adversary to be calculated to take away the right to answer, no. It seems subtly manipulative, and usually, it is subtly manipulative. Most people don't really want to say, no, so if your question makes it even harder for them to do so, you have created an uncomfortable, defensive adversary, and this does you no good at all. Consider the difference between the following choices, is this what you really want, isn't this what you really want? Both are verb-led, and therefore dubious, but the inclusion of the word not makes the second question a really terrible one, because of the insinuated rush to close, remember, no closing, sooner or later in the negotiation, the attempt will backfire. Can you say yes to this? This is another terrible verb-led question. Never frame a question that seems to the adversary to be taking away the right to say no. Is there any reason you wouldn't say yes to this? Even worse, if that's possible. Never frame a question that appears to your adversary as an attempt to trick. This point must be clear, framing any question is very tricky and very important. You can blow a solid one-hour presentation in less than one minute with an ill-chosen, one-sentence question such as, is there any reason you wouldn't say yes to this? But it happens every second of the day, somewhere, because the ill-trained negotiator has been led to believe that he's supposed to ask such a question in order to push things along quickly. But what if you were to ask this question, what would you like me to do? Well, this simple question is of a different sort altogether. This question spawns some interesting dynamics. Mainly, it is a very comforting question to hear. It demonstrates that you, the negotiator who has asked this question, has no needs at the table. You have opened an area for negotiation and shown no fear. You are making no assumptions. The adversary feels okay because you are at her service. You are certainly not closing, attempting to confuse, or any of that negative stuff. Who has control in a conversation, the guy listening or the guy talking? The listener, of course. If you want to maintain maximum control and leverage, and you do, of course, let your adversary do the talking. With a question such as, what would you like me to do, you invite the adversary to indulge this weakness. Moreover, her answer allows you to enter her world and her vision.
Know their pain, paint their pain, work with your adversary's real problem. Pain. This is what brings every adversary in every negotiation to the table. This is a harsh word, maybe even offensive to some who perhaps feel it makes negotiation and business into a blood sport. Pain here is only a technical term. It has nothing to do with actual physical pain, although it could certainly lead to that, in the form of headaches and upset stomachs. Pain in this system is whatever the negotiator sees as the current or future problem. People make decisions in order to alleviate and take away this current or future problem, this pain. Put in these terms, what else would any negotiation concern? As a negotiator, you can and will make a lot of mistakes, of course, but your clear vision of your adversary's pain will see you through thick and thin. As stated earlier, adhering to your mission and purpose will keep you from going seriously astray in a negative direction. Now you have a tool for keeping you oriented in a positive direction, your vision of your adversary's pain. With both mission and purpose and pain, you're in great shape, but without both, you're wandering in the desert. In a really efficient negotiation, both parties will work on clarifying the vision of the pain of the adversary. In any event, you must never enter a negotiation in which you haven't seen your adversary's pain. Never. In fact, if your mission and purpose are set in the world of the adversary, and it is, of course, then the features and benefits of what you offer in this negotiation will necessarily be addressed to the pain in the adversary's world. That said, you must never forget to blank slate and make certain that there's no hidden pain that you haven't discovered, and that is subverting the entire deal. In many cases, the pain will be pretty straightforward, and the issue's pretty clear. But sometimes you really have to dig. In most cases in which you have an intractable problem in a negotiation, either you have failed to help your adversary understand his pain, or you have failed to have a clear vision of the pain, or the real pain is actively hidden. In big corporate negotiations, imagine the different people and their private agendas in which the real pain would be carefully camouflaged. Divisions within a large corporation will even hide their pain from other divisions within the same corporation, common bureaucratic behavior, much less from negotiators for other companies. Negotiators definitely don't hang the pain out for just anyone to look at. Well, occasionally they do, but probably they don't, and great professional negotiators never will. People, negotiators, have to feel safe in order to reveal their pain and, perhaps, even to see it clearly themselves. They definitely will not expose their pain if they think the adversary will try to take advantage of them. Who would? So, your challenge as a negotiator is to discover and paint for your adversary the clearest possible picture of their pain while always nurturing. You can't create a vision and paint the pain effectively without knowing who the real decision makers are. Who is calling the shots? Who are the real decision makers within the adversary's bureaucracy? This might seem at first glance to be a fairly mundane issue, but it's not. It is a critically important issue in any negotiation. How can you create a vision and paint the pain effectively without knowing who the decision makers for the adversary really are? You can't, so the decision-making process within your adversary's organization must be discovered and understood at the very beginning of the negotiation, or as soon thereafter as possible. If you don't accomplish this, you drive up your time and energy budget, maybe your money budget, and, if you're not careful, your emotion budget. As a rule, the bigger the organization, the more complex and confusing the decision-making process can be. When you're dealing with a big multinational, as some of my clients do, solving the shell game can be as frustrating as any aspect of the negotiation. In fact, you will encounter adversaries WHO play the shell game for just this purpose, to drive up your budget. 
Now the decision-making is here, now it's there, now it's elsewhere. Why do negotiators often fail to find the real decision process? Why do many want to just get a decision, any decision, and get the heck out? One reason, according to the author, they fear that they don't have the right behaviors to negotiate with the real decision-makers. In this intensely personal, emotionally fraught discovery of who really makes the decisions, your skills with nurturing, your mission and purpose, and using all your behavioral goals, no matter how elaborate the decision, making the process, you can handle it. You simply negotiate each piece of the puzzle until you have the information you need. It's just that simple, if arduous. How do you find out the truth? The same way you find out the truth on any issue in negotiation, you ask those interrogative-led questions. Of course, you make the decisions. But who else might you want to talk with? Who might be of service in making this decision? Who should we invite to support your decision? Who'd be sorry or upset if we left them out? How will this decision be reached? When will it be reached? What criteria and paperwork must be in place for it to be reached? You need these answers. Eliminate all the wild cards you can think of. Continually ask yourself who's missing? Who's not in my loop who should be? and be ready for unearthing multiple decision-makers and be able and willing to negotiate with each and every one of them. Conclusion We are all professional negotiators, aren't we? Most of us don't think of ourselves this way, but we are all trying to make agreements every day. We're negotiating. Some of us do so haphazardly, maybe even lackadaisically, while some of us realize that since we're always negotiating, the more skillfully we do so, the better off we'll be. Here are a few important gems to remember, every negotiation is an agreement between two or more parties, with all parties having the right to veto, the right to say, no, your job is not to be liked. It is to be respected and effective. Your job is not to be liked. It is to be respected and effective. Results are not valid goals. Money has nothing to do with a valid mission and purpose. Never enter a negotiation, never make a phone call, without a valid agenda. The only valid goals are those you can control, behavior and activity. Mission and purpose must be set in the adversary's world, our world must be secondary. No saving. You cannot save the adversary. Only one person in a negotiation can feel okay. That person is the adversary. All action, all decisions, begins with a vision. Without vision, there is no action. The clearer the picture of pain, the easier the decision-making process. The value of the negotiation increases by multiples as time, energy, money, and emotion is spent. No talking.